All right, well, let's go ahead and uh, dive back into our study in Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. If you'd turn there in your Bibles, Philippians 1 and verse 12. We have been looking at the first 11 verses in the introduction to Philippians up until now. So many great things that have uh, been revealed for us in these verses. We, we've seen the audience in verse 1. We've seen the imprisonment in verse 7. We have seen the, how great this church is in verses 5 and 6. We've seen these two great prayers already that Paul's brought forward in these 11 verses. The first in verses 3 to 8 and the second in verses 9 to 11. We've seen the power of Christ and the gospel throughout this text. And that is just such a joy for us to see as we're reminded of all these things. The, the great intro, introduction. And, and sometimes when we, when we start out of the gate like that so fast, sometimes there's a little lull. You know, we, we see that a lot of times in different things in life. We start very strong, and then, and then we need to kind of catch our stride, and so we coast back a little bit. And we might expect that there would be a bit of a coasting back in our text tonight after such a powerful and great introduction. And our text tonight seems like that's, that might be the case. In fact, that's where the title that I've come up with for our message tonight comes from. I've titled our message tonight, Just When You Think Blank, and you fill in the blank. Just When You Think Blank, and you fill in the blank. Our text tonight for this evening is verses 12 to 14, and each of these verses is a separate point. So we have three verses, and we have three points. The first point in verse 12 is a converse condition. A converse condition. But before we dive into those specifics, let's read these verses together and then we'll come back and unpack them. Follow along as I read verses 12 to 14. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Just when you think. And here we go is into our first point and this aspect of a converse condition. Paul has something very important to convey at the beginning of verse 12, and he tells us this when he says, Now I want you to know, brethren. The now draws attention. It is uh, a fairly emphatic transition that he brings about. He shows us that there's something else that he wants to draw our attention to other than the great prayers, other than the attention to the church, and other than all that he's shown us about Christ and the gospel. Now, I want you to know, brethren, he uses the word know here that reminds us of head knowledge. We've often talked about the fact that there are, both in Hebrew and in Greek, there are two words to describe knowledge. 
One of them describes experiential knowledge and one of them describes head knowledge, or we might say heart knowledge and head knowledge. This is the verb that describes for us this aspect of experiential knowledge. And it is that the, the Hebrew or the Greek word gnosko, which is not vital for us, but the important point for us to understand is he wants them to understand something in their hearts. And he tells us again who he's addressing. He's addressing the brethren. So he comes back and makes highlight of the point that he's speaking to the believers in the church. This is not a small point. A lot of errors are made in Bible translation and interpretation, and particularly interpretation, as assessments are made about the audience that the author is writing to. Sometimes I've heard men say that the book is written, not particularly Philippians, but any of the other New Testament epistles, is written to a church which is composed of believers. And therein, they make interpretations on each verse, assuming that all of the text is written to the believers in the church. Well, it is true that these books are written to the believers in the church, but remember, particularly when it's being written to a church, it's written to the entire audience of the church. And what has Hebrews taught us? That there are three primary audiences that our author addresses in Hebrews. There is the true believing audience, there are the unbelieving audience, and then there is that third audience that thinks that they're believers— but they really are not. So there are three separate audiences in Hebrews. The true believers, the ones who know that they're not believers, and the ones who are there and think they are, but they're really not true believers. They're false converts. They do not live lives of obedience to Christ. They just come to church on Sunday morning and say, that's good enough, as an example. That doesn't mean that everyone who does that is not a believer, but there is indications, and this is showing that. So we need to understand that whenever we read these books, we can't immediately assume, well, they're writing to a believing church, so the interpretation is a function of a believing audience. That is not always the case. Here, however, Paul says, I want you to know brethren. So he brings us to the point that this is definitely for the believers that he wants to address this particular concern. And what he wants them to know is that in his life, things are turning out positively. Things are turning out positively. This brings us to the title of our message, Just When You Think. Just when you think. All that's going on in Paul's life at this point is not indicative of a positive situation. He's in prison in Rome. This is, this is not a great place for him to be. We would expect things are going downhill quickly. Most people who end up in Caesar's tribunal are very quickly next to be either taken to the lions or to be crucified in Rome as an example of those who are fighting against or have committed illegalities against the state, against the, the Roman Empire. But he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Well, when we think about this, we have to stop and address all that's gone on with Paul's life. 
A, a, a great text that tells us a lot about that is something that the ladies' Bible study is looking into, and that is in the book of 2 Corinthians, particularly 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, where Paul gives us a little recount in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28, of all that's gone on in his life. He writes in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my countrymen, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. This is, sums up Paul's life, and this is all up till now. This does not include his Roman imprisonment. The book of 2 Corinthians, written probably around 56 AD, you remember as we've talked about the time frame of Philippians, it's written about 62 AD. So all that, it, 2 Corinthians is written as Paul is preparing to go back to Jerusalem to take the offering back to those people who he has collected on his third missionary journey. And as he gets back there, remember, he gets to uh, Antioch and the prophet takes his belt and ties his own feet and says, so are the, the Romans going to do to the one who owns this belt. So all that Paul goes through as he gets back to Jerusalem, as he's arrested, as, as he is taken and laid out to be flogged by the Romans, as he is, uh, there's a plot to kill him, he's taken down to Caesarea, where he spends two years in jail under Festus, um, and, and King Agrippa comes, and then finally he is put on the boat after he cries out to go to Caesar as he pleads to be before Caesar. And then that horrific journey in the boat in Acts 27 and 28, and now he's in prison in Rome. And you're thinking, this is not a good thing. Just when you think that things are really going down the toilet, it's turning out for the better progress of the gospel. It's like, oh my gosh. Who would have considered such a thing? This is incredible to recognize. By the way, this is one of the really important reasons to be reading the book of Acts. Uh, the Bible reading program that I and a few other people in the church are doing has you reading through Proverbs every day, which is excellent. You should be reading Proverbs every day as well as Psalms. It also has you reading through Acts. And I remember when I started the program and I thought, why am I reading Acts every day? And I mean, it's 28 chapters versus 31. I'm just riddling through this thing. I've read it and I've read it and I've read it. And one time I'm stopping and thinking, I think I've read Acts like 29 times. And, um, and, and on, you know, you go through it. And then I'm, I'm understanding. Acts 
is the major encompassment of all of the New Testament. Think of the time frame of Acts. Okay, it takes him all the way to right now, to the beginning of the Roman imprisonment, about 60 or 61 AD. When does it start? All the way back before Pentecost, when the Lord is still on the earth, 30 AD. Acts covers 30 years of the New Testament. Throughout almost all of the epistles, short of the Johannine epistles and Revelation, are all contained. You have to understand what's going on in Acts because all of the rest of the New Testament epistles unfold. And you can realize when you see Paul in 2 Corinthians giving us this litany of all they went through, you're thinking, oh my goodness, you know, and that includes it all. It doesn't. His biggest boat wreck, Malta, getting bit by the snake. None of that's in there. There's more to add to the list. And so we understand that he has really gone through some difficult times. And now more with the Caesarea imprisonment, again, another shipwreck, all that's going on. And now in the Roman jail, and you're thinking, not good. (laughs) This is not, not how I planned life. (laughs) okay, Lord, I know that I I was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but I really didn't have all this in mind. I mean, um, I'm okay with a little of it, and, you know, the few of the beatings and and the stoning, you know, thanks for taking care of me and and bringing me back to life and all that kind of stuff. But right now, I'm not feeling too good about being in this Roman jail and getting ready to go before Caesar. It is a daunting situation. And now, as we recognize all these things, these, re- these are the realities of his circumstances. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, but no, all this has worked out positively. It has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. A couple technical things I want to note in this verse, just because this is a little bit more like a Bible study, and so, you know, can kind of throw a few of these things out, and I hope they'll be a benefit for you. The, the first is the cross-reference there in verse 12. The little a before the word have. Now, the importance of cross-references. All right, we're studying this book of Philippians. We're doing it in a very kind of informal and, uh, you know, we're not rushing through it. So as you read it and as you prepare for it, you should be going through and looking up these cross-references. Looking back to see what they say and what they're talking about and how does it connect. Because there is great importance and, and I use them often. You'll find out, uh, particularly in the Psalms, cross-references are of vital importance. And I, and I use them uh, abundantly in my preaching when we're going through the Psalms. So you need to understand that. Well, the cross-reference is to Luke 21 and verse 13. So if we were to go back, as we are, if they're good Bereans, back to Luke chapter 21 and to verse 13 of Luke... It says there in Luke 21, 13, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Okay, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. That is, the parallel of have turned out for the greater progress is connected to the opportunity for your testimony. Now, we need to stop and recognize when we see a cross-reference, what does it mean? 
Does it mean that it's the exact same situation? Does it tell us that the, the, the cross-reference verse is the same situation that's being talked about here? No. A cross-reference can be many different things. Oftentimes, it's just a repeated use of a word or a form of a word. This is a classic case in point. In our text in Philippians, he's talking about a positive thing happening as a result of this negative situation. That same environment is going on here in verse 13 of Luke 21, but we need to understand what the context of Luke 21 is. Luke 21 is the Olivet Discourse, as we like to term it. That is where the Lord is teaching his disciples about the end times. This is his teaching as they have left the upper room on Thursday night, the night that he will be arrested on Passion Week. And as he leaves the upper room and they cross the Kidron Valley and they go up on the Mount of Olives and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives and looking across at the temple And the Lord has talked to them about the stones being torn down one from another. And James and John and Peter are sitting there with him. And they say, when will this be, Lord? When is the timing of your coming? Because they're getting a picture that something's going on, but they don't get the picture. Well, that's what the context of this is. So here, this verse, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. I have heard many people take this out of context badly. And say that this means that I really don't have to worry about what I'm going to say. If we looked at at the whole context uh, of this and looked at the other uh, Gospels that talk about this this same reference, many people think, well, this is is the time um, when, when we just... You know, I don't have to evangelize. I really don't have to practice. I don't have to study my my word. I don't have to have a gospel presentation ready. I don't have to have thought out what I might say to someone because the Lord is going to bring the word to my memory at that time. Well, that's not at all it. This particular reference is talking about when they will be taken to be put to death, to be martyred for their faith, that then the Holy Spirit will give them to say what they should say. That's not true in our everyday life. We have to be ready. We have to be prepared to proclaim the gospel. So when we see a cross-reference, the context is very, very different in Luke 21, the Lord talking about the last times, and in Philippians 1 where Paul is talking in Philippians 1 about how this current situation in this time has worked for the better progress of the gospel. Note another thing here about this, another technical point, about this, uh, this verb, have turned out. As we think about, and, and this is not going to be a Greek class, so don't worry. Um, if you want more information on that, I'd love to talk to you about it because there is great depth. But we can understand so much from the verbs in our Bible based on our English understanding. And sometimes we just read by, right by them. And it's important for us to stop and realize what's going on. There are are actually three elements that are being conveyed in every verb. There is the tense of the verb. There is the voice 
of the verb and there is the mood of the verb. Tense is simply what we consider in English time. Present time, it's going on right now. Past time, it already happened. Or future time, it will happen. And how are those conveyed? Present time is the simple verb. I run. It's, it's ongoing. We don't know that he's running, that he's happening right now. There's just been a present time action of running. If it's past tense, and a better word is trample, um, to consider the past tense. We add ed to it, don't we? I trampled. I trampled. Past tense. So that happened before this current thing is being written. Or I will trample. And the verb, the helping verb will added to it. That's tense. Okay? Past, present, future. Very important. And we can see that if we just slow down a little bit as we look through the verbs and see what's happening. Here's another little helper there is the element of voice that is active or passive i trampled i was trampled okay if i'm trampling i'm the one on the upper end if i was trampled i'm the one underneath so it's the active tense versus the passive tense and if you see a form of the word be B-E in there. It helps you understand that it's passive. Someone else is doing the action. Very, very important in the Bible because a lot of times those passive actions are being done by God. So look for those things as you look through your Bibles and understand that's happening. Now, Greek has a few more. It has this tense that's called perfect and we talk about it a lot because there is a lot of it in the Bible and it has a lot of importance. It is an action that happened in the past but has ongoing impact. And we see it described by that word have. Just like we have in verse 12. Have turned out. What does that mean? It, that I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out. It means that there was a past understanding of this. Now we could go back in, uh, in some of Paul's other writings, and we could see some of these past actions. In fact, if we went back to the book of Acts and Acts chapter 27, there is uh, an indication of this turning out. And, um, and in Acts 27 and verse 23, Paul talks about this turning out it says acts 27 23 for this very night an angel of god to whom i belong and to whom i've served stood before me saying do not be afraid paul you must stand before caesar so have turned out could have been back to where paul was on the boat it could even go back beyond that we can go back to chapter 23 and the lord talks to paul and he says don't worry paul you must preach in rome but it goes even before that. This is all the way back to explain to us that this has all been God's plan. All of this imprisonment, all of these things are in God's plan. Beloved, it's no different with us. All of it is in God's plan. These, these continued effects as well. And that's what God designed all this so that there would be greater progress of the gospel. Could Paul have had such an effect without this? I don't think so. And we'll see that as we look at the rest of the verses. But the key element is what the progress is towards in verse 12. 
namely the gospel. It is the progress towards the gospel. Paul is all about the gospel. We've already seen it two times. Verse 5, the gospel. Verse 7, the gospel. We see it moving ahead throughout the rest of the letter. It Five more times, Paul will speak about the importance of the gospel. Why? Because it's everything. It's all Paul is. It's all we are. We've so often talked about the glories and the joys of heaven and how there is only one thing that we do on earth that we will not be able to do better in heaven. And it is share the gospel. That's why God leaves us here. He's not putting us through some divine training period. He's not trying to see if he can't shape us and get us in a little better form before we get to heaven because we're never going to get there as we ought. But it is so that we can preach the gospel. This is the whole thing. This was the idea of a converse condition. Just when you think everything is going south, it turns around and God shows the positive element. Well, our second point in verse 13, a convenient cause, a convenient cause is directly connected to what we just saw in verse 12 in a converse condition. Look at verse 13 again with me. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. The verse begins with so that, okay? For you good Bereans, that is a super important word. When you see it is one Greek word, two English words, so that. Also, sometimes you just see the English word that. When a verse begins with that or so that, it's telling you this is the purpose. This is what's the the important stuff behind what you just read. So that, the purpose of all of that. The purpose is that Paul's imprisonment will be revealed. The word for imprisonment here is also the word translated as bonds or fetters. Paul wants to make sure everyone knows why he's in prison. He is not one of the regular guys in the Roman jail. He is not one of the horrific lawbreakers because that's really the only way that you get into Caesar's jail. If you have been so heinous and so bad that they want to make a radical display of you, then you end up in Caesar's jail, which is where Paul is now. But he he wants everyone to understand that's not what it's about with him. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become so well known. He wants everyone to know that he has been in prison. He has not broken any laws. He has not had uh, a DUI. He is not in for tax evasion or murder. He is in prison for preaching the gospel. He's in prison because of Christ. God has orchestrated and worked this whole thing out. And that's why it was a convenient cause. It is the cause of Christ. It was most convenient. And notice the whole Praetorian Guard knew about it. Who's the Praetorian Guard? We don't see much about them in Scripture. We look into some of the the other extra-biblical sources, and they tell us that the Praetorian Guard was the most elite of the Roman army. 
9,000 of them. Nine wings of a thousand men. When they had the most difficult spot anywhere in the Roman Empire, they would send one of the wings of the Praetorian Guard. They kept them to guard Caesar's prison because this is where the most heinous of the criminals were. Well, Paul's imprisonment had become known to the whole Praetorian Guard. He, because they have had to watch him, two men round the clock, 24 hours a day. Talk about your prison expenses, two to one prisoner ratio, that's going to cost the people some money. So here are these two men that are spending time with Paul. And he's not like the rest of the guys. He's not out there looking for a, a chance for them to fall asleep and for him to get up and, and take them out. Not at all. He's only there to talk to them about the gospel. He's only there to talk to them about Christ. And they're conversing with one another. What's the story with this guy? What's the story with the little guy in the jail cell over there? I mean, he, he doesn't even curse, right? He, he sings at night. He's kind of a wimp, you know, and he keeps talking about this Jesus. What's going on with that? And so they're talking about one, one another, and it's moving out, and it moves out to where it goes through the entire Praetorian Guard, through his extended time in jail. They all knew what was going on. These men, these brutal guards and not only were these guarding him and through them the whole guard but also everyone else who's everyone else well this is most likely the rest of those in rome 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 is a, a, essentially the center of a, uh, a a war state the roman empire is a warring nation they live to conquer they roll out in their armies, they, they, they take everything in their path, and then they bring it back in great victory marches. So those that live in Rome are primarily these soldiers. The Praetorian Guard being the foremost of those. Isn't that interesting? Just when you think, you know, you're going to be taken off to this Roman jail and thrown in a dungeon, and, you know, nothing's going to go your way. Not only are you guarded, but you're guarded by the most elite in the entire city. And they begin to talk. And then they, the rest of them begin to talk. And pretty soon, this has gone through the entire town. Consider the anomaly that Paul was. Everybody's talking about this little guy that just sits there. And nobody knows to, what to do with. Has anybody known what to do with Paul yet? Since he was first arrested? No. The Roman centurion didn't know what to do with him. Festus didn't know what to do with him. Felix didn't know what to do with him. King Agrippa didn't know what to do with him. And I suspect now, and the length of his imprisonment indicates this, almost three years for a crime that they had no, no foundation for. I mean, they couldn't even really pin it down. And remember, that's what Felix was saying to Agrippa. I really don't know what to write to Caesar about this guy. So now all of a sudden he's in Rome coming guarded by this whole cohort and now the gospel is going forth in an amazing way. A convenient, convenient cause. Paul's life of just when you think is becoming a massive testimony in Rome. 
Well, that leads us to our third point in verse 14, a confident confirmation. A confident confirmation. We go from a converse condition to a convenient cause to a confident confirmation in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me if you would. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Not only did Paul's imprisonment reach all of Rome. I mean, you've got the center of the empire here in Rome. You've got probably the most pagan, unbelieving city that is imaginable. And his testimony has gone out to all of them. But not only this, Paul's imprisonment in Rome has moved in an evangelistic sense, but it has resulted in this confident confirmation as well. These believers in Rome, that is most of the church, are greatly encouraged to speak the word of God. You know, think about what's going on. 60, 62 AD, Nero is just coming into power. In about two years, he'll burn Rome and charge it to the Christians so that he can go on an all-out slaughter of them. Being a Christian in Rome, you don't just run around with your Bible standing on the street corner and your microphone like some of our college boy preachers hollering out about how everybody needs to know Jesus or they're going to hell. Because that kind of activity, that will send you to the lions right now. So they're a little bit sheepish. We understand being a little bit sheepish about sharing our faith. It's not the easiest thing to do. But it's a whole different thing when that word may result in your death that day. Right? That, that brings a little more. I'm going to think a little bit more about what I'm saying, who I'm saying it. Okay, you know, the Bible says don't cast my pearl before swine, and I don't want to do that, and I don't want to end up with my head chopped off today. So let's make sure the people we're talking to might be willing to listen. But now, everybody's talking about Paul. The whole city is murmuring about this man in prison. And the people in the church are going, you know, I think we can start talking about it too. I think we can start talking about this man. I think we can start talking about why this man's in prison, namely about Christ and about the gospel. And they are becoming motivated. They are lighting up for the opportunity to preach Christ. Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. You know what? So what? What has Paul shown us? That he is there in prison and he doesn't care about his imprisonment. Isn't that what we learned in the last section? It's all about the gospel. I don't care. The chains aren't an issue. I just want Christ to be known. Seven times using the name of Jesus Christ in the first 11 verses. That's all he cares about. And pretty soon the people in the church are going, I think he's got something there. You know, I think it's time for me to stand up. I think it's time for me to step out. I think it's time for me to start talking about Jesus Christ, my Savior. 
I have more courage. If, if that little man can go through all of that and hang out in that jail and talk to those bad boy soldiers who kill people for fun and they're all talking about him and all of Rome is talking about him, I think it's time for me to start talking. What an encouragement for us. And they don't just talk, but they have far more courage. That's that wonderful word from that I love to quote. It's not in the New American Standard, but Dave's not here, so he can't come and talk to me about it. Um, that is in the King James, New King James Version in Ephesians 3.20, exceedingly abundantly. It is that same, same word for abundantly. Far more here is abundant courage to speak the word of God. They are overflowing and they are doing so without fear. Incredible for this to move forward. They saw what the Lord could do and they're motivated. Not only that, but again, without fear. The conditions in Rome would bring bring tremendous fear. Six years ago, the Jews were thrown out of Rome and those that weren't out, according to Josephus, in two days were killed. You better get everything you've got, get it in a bag, and get out of town. You got two days or we're gonna kill you. So the Jews have been thrown out. Now they have since been let back in. But now Christian martyrdom is picking up. And not, they, they're not worried. They're speaking boldly without fear. A couple of really powerful applications for our lives in, there, in here, aren't there? Should we have any fear as we proclaim Christ? Do we have such dangers in our life? How much more should we be motivated to proclaim our Savior and our God, to live for Him and to realize that the one thing God has left us on this earth to do, I want to do well. I want to stand on the shoulders of giants like Paul and others who have said, I will talk about my Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe, therefore, we speak, the Scripture tells us in Romans. And not just that. What is it that's going on in your life that fits this? Just when you think. Just when you think this is going down the toilet. Just when you think that's not going to work out. Just when you think all of this effort has been for naught. God's not wasting this. God's not wasting any of it in any of our lives. He knows every nuance. He knows every thought in our mind every word on our tongue before we speak it, every hair on our head. He's numbered our very days. He is using it. We cannot be distraught. We cannot be downtrodden. We cannot think, oh my, oh me, this is just such a train wreck. What are we going to do? God is doing amazing things in all of it. Whether it's personal tragedy or whatever may be happening, beloved recognize that God is using all of it. And he is showing us these amazing truths to think, oh my goodness, it couldn't be any worse in this situation. But in point of fact, it couldn't be any better. Because what does the Bible say? When we are weak, he is strong. 
Give me weakness every day. Give me more weakness, Lord. Because the only strength I got that can do anything is yours. You know, as, as we come before him and as we recognize trials, as we recognize struggles, let's praise him for it. Let's look forward to what he is going to do through these in us and to realize that we too must be those who take opportunity and have that courage. None of us knows how long we have individually. None of us knows how long we have as a a group of people on this earth. But one thing we do know, we know who wins and we know the message to tell people so that they can be there with us when he comes. Amen? May that be our strength as we consider this wonderful piece of this glorious epistle.